welcome to the TEH, the Tech Enthusiast Hour podcast, where several hosts talk about things they find interesting in tech each week. The show notes for this episode will be at tehpodcast.com slash teh41. We've got three hosts this week. I'm Leo Notenboom, the chief question answerer out at askleo.com. I'm also the publisher of a couple of non-tech sites. Not All News is Bad, a daily antidote for everything else that's running across your social media feeds. And heroicstories.org, twice weekly stories of people just being good people. I'm Kevin Savitz, the uh, creator of freeprintable.net, which is a site that offers uh, 46,945 printable documents and templates, and faxzero.com, a surprisingly still used site that lets you send faxes anywhere in the U.S. or Canada for free. I just used it this week, actually. Um, I'm Gary Rosenzweig, the host and producer of macmost.com, where I post new Mac, iPhone, and iPad tutorials pretty much every day. I also make web-based games and mobile games, and kind of the home for all of that is clevermedia.com. So, uh, jumping right into what we did this week. Jump it in. Jump it in. So, have any have either of you guys tried uh, in the sharing economy a parking sharing app? No, or heard of that? So. No. So this is something, you know, the sharing economy, you can share rides with Lyft and Uber and you could, there's bikes and scooters and, you know, Airbnb and everything. So parking spaces are something that came up, maybe started a couple of years ago, actually, but um, where there are services where you could, you have a parking space. Say you, you say you live in a building downtown and you go to work. I do live day. in a building. You, do, you live in a building downtown. But, and, <laughs> and it's say not there's, downtown. <laughs> say, there's a, say there's a parking garage and you have a parking spot. You pay like a lot of money for that parking spot. But every day you get up and you go to work in the morning and you don't come back till dinner and the spot sits empty. And there are, there are apps that will allow you to share that spot to, you know, somebody could pay you a few dollars and then parking your spot during the day. And, you know, the opposite, people can park it in work spots at night, you know, go to like an event downtown, you know, that kind of thing. So I, uh, one of these is, one of these apps is called Spot Hero, and they actually don't do the thing, I, I think they don't do the thing where, like as an individual, you can share a spot. Well, what they do is they go to parking garages, and they um, convince the parking garage to be part of their system, and they could sell spots in the app. So you could reserve a spot in advance, and... Uh, and have it, you know, where it might not normally be available to the public. So I had to go to, well, I had to go. I went to a baseball game this week downtown during the day. Oh, you had to go. That's okay. Yeah. And uh, it has been years since I drove because I live about four miles from the ballpark and I uh, ride my bike usually. I have walked. I uh, sometimes coming home, I'll take an Uber or a Lyft, but I, the thing I don't do is park and then pay like a ton of money for a parking spot. It's usually about $20, $20 to park. And, uh, and since I buy like my tickets through the sharing economy as well, using like StubHub or Vivid Seats or something, um, the parking spot would be actually more than the cost of the ticket. So I had to drive though this week because I had something to do like right at the time this game should end, I had to be somewhere. So it's like, I need to have my car there and be able to jump in the car and go. So I thought, well, this might be an opportunity to use a parking sharing app. So I tried Spot Hero and sure enough, they promised a $5 parking spot just a few blocks from the game in a garage in a, like a, a building um, that had like shopping and I think there was some housing and maybe some businesses there too. So I don't know what spot I was taking or whatever. But I skeptically paid my $5 on my phone and it said I had a spot. So I went there to the garage and it said, show your you know, phone. I, th I thought I was going to run into a situation where there'd be like a guy in a booth and he'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But instead I came up to a electronic gate and it had a little like reader that would like scan a card or whatever. And like the app said, I showed the screen of the app, which had one of those um, QR codes on it. And not only did it immediately accept it, but it even said, welcome spot hero Parker. I was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And so then it went in and it said park in any non-reserved spot. So there were lots of spots that said reserved. And I found one that was not reserved, parked there. And when I left, I had to show it again. And it even said on the screen, you know, thank you, Spot Hero Parker. Please come again. And 
and and I looked on my account, and sure enough, I was charged exactly five dollars. And I parked a few blocks away from a baseball game where everybody else was paying twenty dollars to park in a garage that was like really nice and safe, like way nicer than some of the crappy lots. You know, there's some guy out there just with a wad of bills, you know, taking cash from you. Yeah. You know, when you park at Sporting Event, it's like this was way better experience than normal parking. And it really did only cost me five bucks less than it would have cost if I would have taken a, a Lyft or Uber. Yeah, parking um, is one of the nice. most amazing scams yeah. for the uh, um, sporting events here too. Mm-hmm. I think if you only pay $20 to go to like a, a Seattle Seahawks or Mariners game for parking, you're actually getting off cheap. So yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. I've been using a parking app, but a very different kind of, parking app um, here in Portland, um, there is, if you're parking on the city streets, normally uh, the, the way to do that if you're in an area that requires paying for parking is you you get out of the car and you tromp down you know, half a block or whatever it is to the little kiosk and you put your credit card in the machine and you get a ticket and you have to tromp back to your car and kind of put the ticket on the dashboard or you know in the window thing. And that's how you pay for parking. Um, they've recently um, have an app for there's an app for that for for paying for parking um it's called parking kitty and uh apparently as far as i can tell it's it's only in portland right now um that seems to be true i I, while you were talking about it i was looking it up in the google store and it just says you know parking just got easier in portland yeah so maybe it's a portland company i don't know um but it's weird that they're only in portland anyway so Basically, it's an app on your phone, and you pre-enter your your credit card number and and your your dry, your uh, car your plates and that sort of thing, and um, then you can uh, enter the the zone number. Basically, you bring up the app, you enter your zone number. You know, I'm parked in zone one thousand two, and say how long you want to park, and then you can just walk away from the car. You don't have to do the the extra steps of um of going to the kiosk and getting out your credit card. In you know, maybe it's a sketchy area or Whatever, uh, you still have to do that. Um, and the the surcharge that Parking Kitty takes is ten cents. So um, awesome, yeah. Uh, and nice. So there was some dis- actually there's some discussion with the wife. I'm like, why are you paying ten cents? Why don't you just walk <laughs> through the kiosk? And I'm just like, Cause, uh, I would. You know, Seattle works the same way. We've got the same thing. Those kiosks on the street. And you have to walk to the kiosk and then walk back, and you have to do the self stick thing on the inside of the correct window and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, yes, I would absolutely pay 10 cents not to have to walk to the kiosk and back. Oh yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Ju- just the convenience of right. just doing it on my phone. And then it's like, it feels more like, Oh, I've done this. I have like a trail digital trail of that. I've paid for parking and it's That's right. There's an audit trail in case you get a ticket. Yeah. 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 Um, and uh, yeah, and there's a little timer on your phone that actually you know, counts down and oh, nice. it's just kind of cool. And it gives you a little 10 buzz cents of a value right there. Right. Yeah. 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 It gives you a little buzz when you've got five minutes left or something like that. I'd pay 20 cents for that. <laughs> Can you extend your parking remotely? So it, it does have that possibility. Although most of the places that I park in Portland don't allow you to. Okay. So um, there's so, a maximum. So there's a maximum. So you can buy your two hours and then you're not, you're not supposed to buy another ticket, you know, parking ticket, uh, without moving the car. And, and I don't tell anybody, but I have actually just bought another parking kitty and, uh, you know, waiting oh. for after the first one expires. Um, but, so you know, problem, and, I, of course and is, I got away with it with that time. But I guess, you know, they probably have a way of. Um, well, yeah, I was to say they've got the audit trail this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I totally moved my car. Anyway, so it's a different kind of parking app. Um, not as interesting as yours, really, but kind of kind of cool and something yeah well there's all sorts of them and so it's interesting area of development because there are ones that'll find you spots and there's our our ones where individuals can sell spots and and it's uh it just seems like an area that's ripe for innovation just because you know parking's an inconvenience Mm -hmm. and and you know making it easier either by finding a spot or just making it the process of paying a little bit more seamless is is all very good i like it yep Mm -hmm. excellent so what have you guys been up to well, before we let you go, oh, oh, well, we could talk. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to. You have opinions, and I want to know them about uh, the the uh, what Apple okay. had just opinions. Been. Opinions. All right. So yeah, Apple came out with new stuff. <laughs> um, so opinions. So I've never been first for the Apple Watch. I've never you know been a huge fan personally of the Apple Watch. It's weird because I I think it's a cool piece of technology, 
and like I like it, but I just don't wear a watch. So, and the Apple Watch wasn't enough to convert me. What's, right. well, you, can, you can appreciate it, but to I say this is not for me, it's yeah. not for me. The yeah. um, the the thing with having you know the big new development is the ECG only available in the U.S. You know, and it's like first apparently the first time you could just go and buy like something like an Apple Watch, and now you have an ECG tied to you, right? You can monitor What's an ECG? Electrocardiogram. Oh, okay. Also known as the EKG. But I think that's I think like that's the a old thing, isn't it? Isn't it? Oh, I thought it was no. just like anyway. It, so it'll it's like what you would used to have to pay a lot of money to have hooked up to you, and they run a test. Now the Apple Watch has a sensor in it, and it could run probably a not as I'm assuming not as good as like having a million sensors hooked up to your body, but it could it could do things. It could certainly um, tell you if you're you have some heart ailments, or at least give you good enough like. Yeah, you should probably see a doctor kind of warning. So the interesting thing about technology like that is it, you know, you run the numbers on it, it's going to save lives, right? Mm-hmm. And the Apple Watch and other wearable devices have already saved lives, you know, just by having them available and then having thousands or hundreds of thousands of people wear them. Uh, they're going to save people's lives. So having that ECG is going to mean that, you know, all these people that buy the Series 4 watch are going to use it. And they're going to you know, try it out, and then a few of those people are going to get little warnings mm-hmm. and say, oh, I should go see a doctor. And the doctor's going to say, yeah, you've got an issue. I'm glad you came in. And that's just, it's just, you know, it's nothing magical about it. It's just how it works. There's also a fall sensor in it. Oh, yeah, that sounded cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so if you're wearing it and you actually have like, it's not like, oh, you're, you know, the watch went from three feet above the ground to, zero feet it, it's actually doing all these things to detect a real fall right so that's gonna save people too i mean it's you know most people won't ever use it it's never going to make a difference in their lives but then there's going to be a few people that are mm-hmm. actually going to fall and knock themselves out or have a serious injury and this thing is going to alert somebody yeah and it like comes up with a thing saying like it looks yeah. like you took a hard fall you have 30 seconds to press i'm okay otherwise i'm calling 911 or something like that yeah yeah, yeah. Awesome. And and if you are at risk, like so, you're you know somebody that has uh, issues, you know that maybe produce seizures or or whatever, um, you can actually program it, you know, with like call, you know, message these people, call these people, and all this. So you could set it up to be like exactly what you need. Um, and it's just one of these things. It, enough people are going to be wearing these that it's going to help people and save people's lives. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same as you know when the original watch came out and it told people to like take breaks from work and. Uh, you know, every hour it's like take a one minute breather or whatever. And it, those, they're, they're positive things. So I don't know, interesting stuff. Now, as far as the iPhones. Before, but before you add us, listener, the, uh, the American Heart Association says an EKJ and the an ECG are the same thing. Oh, okay. So there cool. you go. That's what I thought. Please, please go ahead. Uh, the, so the new iPhones. Yeah, I mean, really cool stuff. Um, the, I have an iPhone 10 now. And the 10s is just probably not uh, like I can't see justifying getting a 10s when I have a 10 already, even though the the focus, you know, the changing focus, the field of death after you take a picture is super cool. Um, it's probably not enough for me to spend a thousand bucks to get another one. Uh, the the 10s Max, of course, adds the bigger screen, which is attractive to me, but I kind of do like. You know, more of a pocket-sized phone now. Something that's, I can. It doesn't get in my way. When I had the, I had a seven. Uh, I had a six plus, a seven plus, um, and those were great. I love the big screen, but sometimes when biking or doing things like summary type things, and it, the phone just too big sometimes. So the ten is a kind of a nice compromise. Um, I think the ten R is great because it has like most of the cool things about a 10 but it's a lower price and a lot of people just were like led i don't really care lcd is fine for you know fine for me and then there's people that just don't do much in photography and if those two things aren't check boxes you know the photography and the led screen then a 10r is you know 250 dollars cheaper so you know it's good it's a good lineup it definitely now instead of 10 being by itself in terms of face id and uh, you know, having the notch and all that stuff. Now there's four, uh, well, three phones because there is no 10 anymore. The 10S replaces it. Um, and those, uh, so, you know, 
Apple's got a whole line of phones like that rather than just being this one that's out there. I find it interesting how very slowly or maybe not so slowly Apple's been pushing the ceiling on what people expect to pay for a phone. Yeah, well, because they didn't, you know, people complained about the $1,000 iPhone 10 and then people bought it. Yes, <laughs> and, exactly. And Wall Street was all like, well, what do you know? We were wrong. People <laughs> had no problem buying a $1,000 phone. Um, yeah, my thinking in that is that people, you know, you think, oh, okay, a phone, it's just a phone. It shouldn't cost that much, right? You know, wasn't it just the other day that you could just walk into a place and you get a free phone if you signed up for <laughs> service, right? But then the other, other side of that is people use their phones all the time. And, well, and they use them for so many more yeah. things than just being it's a phone. not just a phone. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and people like were spending thousands of dollars on a computer and using like they'd come home from work and use the computer for an hour or two. And then now they have this device that's still at $1,000 cheaper than their computer. And they use it all day long. It wakes them up as their alarm clock in the morning. They check the news. They check their email. They're using it for directions to get to work. They use it all day long to text message people, to take pictures, to do things. They use it all evening long. And it goes back on the nightstand. It's like it's your digital assistant. And it's like 1000 bucks for something you use so much. Um, I think is what it came down to. And people in the end were, were fine. You know, just a thousand bucks is fine. And now it's $1,100 for the iPhone 10s max. And I think it's 1400 or something. Cause they, the, the largest size of storage now is 512 gigs. So half a terabyte of storage. <laughs> well, it's, no, so I, 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 uh, I've been, using doing video work on my iPhone. I was actually, uh, so I'm um, filming um, my teenager, you know, play sports. And, and <clears throat> so I've been filming some of the, the games for highlight reels. And I was using my Canon, uh, you know, my Canon Rebel with a nice zoom lens on it. And I was recording 30 frames a second, 1080. And, <clears throat> and it was, you know, fine, but I couldn't zoom in that far. So I'd miss the place because, you know, you, I'm not like a sports video guy right so i'm good i can't follow the ball around but so i'd zoom out and just get a wide field and it was fine and then one day i pulled out my phone and i did the 2x telephoto lens on the iphone 10 and i saw that the feet the size of the you know the range of what i was filming was the same so i said well why don't i just film this on my iphone 10 because the iphone 10's number one got autofocus which is nice as players move up and down the field and then the iphone 10 records 4k at 60 frames a second and which is great for slowing stuff down and right. it's great for zooming in after the fact so i was getting the same amount of video in but if i needed to zoom in for this highlight reel i could because i had 4k of resolution um and then suddenly the 128 gigabytes on my phone became useful <laughs> because <laughs> video like that will eat it up and it just needs to eat it up until I get back and then I offload it onto you know my computer and and look at the video and stuff but I could definitely see if you do a lot of video you're you're all in on that 512 uh you know uh gig iPhone 10 because you're going to use that you know it's, a, it's an incredible value for if you're doing 60 frames a second, 4K video. Yeah. And these iPhones still do not have like a slot for extra memory or anything, right? Nope. Yeah. No, so, yeah. Half a terabyte, you don't need extra memory. Yeah. Well, if you're recording, if you're recording 60, 60 frames a second of 4K, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. The, uh, I watched the, the, the Apple event and uh, I enjoyed it and I was... I said, I think I said last week I was going to order a new phone, and then I didn't. I I'm sort of sitting on it. I, just like my my little success is fine, and the battery's still pretty good, and and I feel like if I had a new glorious new phone, I would probably use it a lot more. And do I really want that? <laughs> you know? So, um, so do you have the original battery in it? Yeah, you must not use Snapchat. <laughs> No, I do not. <laughs> that kills. No, I, somebody should do an economic. I, I use, yeah. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, somebody should do an economic analysis of of what Snapchat actually costs. Um, I think I mentioned before on the show how you know I looked at our bandwidth bill 
Mm. And, you know, it's unlimited. It's not unlimited. It's like 10 or 15 gigabytes, you know, per month. And so I look at everybody's phones and our teenager's phone is, of course, the largest use of bandwidth. And then I looked at that phone and that phone, I looked at the amount of of bandwidth being used and it was almost all Snapchat because you you kind of just flip through and watch all these tiny little videos Mm -hmm. all day long. And I was like, okay, so the amount I'm paying in bandwidth it's like 60% of that is actually bandwidth to and from Snapchat. And I thought, well, that's, uh, you know, $1,500 a year in bandwidth to Snapchat. Not to mention the fact that that battery has been replaced (laughs) because you, it just drains the battery so much, you know, playing video that's streaming over the internet. Um, So thinking in terms of batteries and bandwidth, Snapchat, a free app, is probably the most expensive app that anybody ever uses. I don't think is Snapchat the one where people take pictures themselves and then they look like dogs or whatever. It, that's it's one of the things. Filters. That's one of the things it does. Yeah. Okay. That's I. I saw that. I think my kid had used that, and I was just like, mm, not for me. And I wrote it off and have never. I don't think I've ever installed it. If I'm gonna look at pictures, I'll I'll go for Instagram. Nothing wrong. I with keep. I keep looking at Snapchat every once in a while. For a while, Gary Vaynerchuk, big, you know, internet marketing guru, was just just really, really hot on Snapchat. Snapchat was going to rule the marketing space or something like that. So, sure, I'll take a look. Mm -hmm. I just have a hard time getting it. I mean, if you don't have people communicating with regularly that actually use it, um, and I'm sure, you know, like both of your kids are, are doing exactly that. They're, it's because they're there because all their friends are there. It's yep. the classic case. Right. Um, but uh, I got nothing. I, I think I, ha- I have it installed. I had it installed. I don't think I have it installed anymore. I'm not even sure. It, it is almost like, I mean, teens today, from what I've observed, they, they, they don't realize it, but they are, are actually living in two worlds at the same time. They're living in the physical world and they're already existing in this virtual world, right. mostly Snapchat. Right. And they will be, you know, going out and they're in one location and they're Snapchatting with friends at another location. And then they go to that other location and they're physically with those people, but then they go to, you know, people move around. It's, it's really, it's really interesting. It's, yeah. it's very science fictiony. It's just that it's not the way that, science fiction envision it not with the goggles and people right. sitting in chairs and being in some sort of second life kind of virtual reality simulation it's more this augmented reality mm-hmm. i have to admit i'm kind of with kevin in that i've been spending a little bit more time with instagram over the past couple of months yeah i'm actually finding that more interesting mostly because it's visual which is something that appeals to me and you know, yeah, I can I can take pictures of my dogs, and people appreciate it. You know, it's it's I get that positive feedback loop going. So, it just to me, it makes a little bit more sense. Yep. Now, your kid used to be into Instagram, right, Gary? It, it has yeah. Are, well, the, are they less the interested kids, now? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was because Instagram was hot for a while and Snapchat came in, or it was the age group. It's, I mean, it's I, all the old people like me coming in. It's Instagram right. to me. It seems like it's become – so it started out when it was really about photography, right? right, taking pictures. And for a while, the kids took over, and now it's actually going back to being about photography, at least from what I've, I can observe. And I, I go on Instagram you know, often, and I do it because I want to see really nice photos that are taken by people that I, I know. Yeah. And then post some of my really nice photos. So it's almost like it's come back around. And I think it may be that for a while it filled in a, a need for teenagers. And then Snapchat came in and said, we'll do exactly what the teenagers want instead of having them having to kind of do it makeshift through Instagram. Right. And now Snapchat has taken that completely over. They still post things to Instagram, but it's more of a like once a week kind of I'm going to post like this perfect picture and see how many likes I get kind of thing. It's, it's not this, it's not part of their lives. It's mm. this side thing that they do where Snapchat is like front and center. I think it's also their, interesting that in, Instagram has been trying to sort of play a little bit of catch up as has Facebook for that matter, by adding these things called stories, which yeah. essentially are Snapchat, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stories, a little bit of a video, a little bit of something that hangs around for a while and then disappears after 24 hours, um, which is very, very Snapchat like, but, um, again, I just, it's not, I don't think it's appealing to the, uh, to the audience that's already gone over to Snapchat. 
Yep. Kevin, what have you been up to this week? Um, I just recently published an interview with uh, Bruce Artwick, which I was uh, happy to get to interview for my uh, Atari podcast. He's guy, the guy who, you, you could argue with me on this, you could fight me, but basically he's the guy who invented the flight simulator for microcomputers. I'm going to argue with you on that. No, I, don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's hard when like we've said, it, you know, it's hard to say anybody was the first or, or whatever, because there's always some, you know, someone argue, but uh, uh, he created a program called flight simulator two, which was on uh, the Apple two and other computers. And it was basically the first uh, flight simulator uh, that worked on a microcomputer that, that anybody, uh, um, ever saw and uh, got to interview him and uh, it, it was it was really interesting super interesting interview and um, so that's published at ataripodcast.com um, uh, <laughs> a couple interesting points um, after I had after he did the flight simulator which was hugely popular and like bestseller list for like months and made him you know big money and he eventually sold the, the company to uh, Microsoft for bigger money. I was going to uh, ask if that was, if that was where our, that uh, was absolutely the genesis of uh, Microsoft flight simulator. It yeah. was an awesome flight simulator. Yes. Um, uh, so he did flight simulator too. And then like his next program out was uh, called night mission pinball. And it was a pinball game. And I asked him, I'm sure I said to him, I'm sure no one ever asked you about night mission pinball, but um, why, why, why did you do a <laughs> a pinball game after creating a massively successful flight simulator. And his answer surprised me. It was that, well, there was another guy who had a pretty successful pinball game that was also on the, the charts of the, you know, the top 20 uh, software sellers every month. And that guy announced he was going to do a flight simulator. <laughs> so Bruce said, fine, if you're going to get into flight simulation, I'm going to get into pinball. <laughs> so that's the only reason he created a pinball game. That's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And with that, I've, uh, I'm hanging up my uh, interviewing hat for a while. Um, feeling a little, just need a break and do some other projects. So um, I'm, I said I'm going to uh, take a break for a bit. I don't know how long a bit is going to end up being, but I'm going to find some other, other things to do. Cool. Well, that was a good one to, uh, to end the current run on for sure. Yeah. 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 And uh, it was good. I've done more than 350 interviews with, Wow. Classic computer folks, and yeah, feeling a little, a little tired. So, just are there see. really three hundred and fifty classic computer folks out there to interview? <laughs> wow, uh, there, oh, I could, I could do three hundred fifty more easily. I mean, really, so, so many, you know, so many people made stuff. Yeah, absolutely, I could do this forever. But everyone's, you know, getting old. So, <laughs> oh, that's the actually, that's actually the argument to not stop doing. I know, I know, I know. They stop is. living. You know, yeah, I know. I feel a little guilty about it, but. I need a break. So what yep. can you do? Yep. What yep. about you, Leo? Um, oh, nothing terribly exciting. Although I did, I, I did want to mention I got written up by the uh, Microsoft Alumni Network. They are an organization, as you might imagine, targeting uh, folks who used to work at Microsoft, and they have a fairly you know, large membership base and a weekly or a monthly newsletter and all that kind of stuff. They decided to. Um, profile me specifically in one of their, um, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a giving back kind of a segment. They profiled my volunteer work with uh, one of the volunteer organizations that I donate my time to, the Washington State Animal Response Team, or WASART as we lovingly call it. Um, and it was, it, from my perspective, it was really, really nicely done as so many, you know, occasionally you run across these profiles and you know that they're nothing like what the, uh, what the person maybe originally submitted or hoped, hoped to get across. Um, I was actually pleased with the way this turned out. It actually reflects very, very well on Wasart, which was really my, my goal in getting the, uh, the organization in front of a, a few more faces in the area, uh, a few more faces that might be interested in, uh, in what Wasart does. So that was kind of fun. And, you know, of course, nice. we'll have a link in the show notes in case people are curious what I do when I'm, when I'm not banging my head against a computer. I'm, you know, lifting heavy things or pulling ropes <laughs> or or, you know, hope, you know, helping people with, uh, with various things. What originally got me interested in that organization was my, uh, my amateur radio skills. Um, 
and I was looking for an organization to to you know donate some of that time to for a variety of reasons, and they came across my radar as using ham radio on their deployments. And since I've been volunteering there, I think I've actually used the ham radio exactly once on a deployment. Uh, but it's also a case where, you know, I showed up on day, you know, at, at some point to one of their trainings and they needed somebody suddenly to talk about communications. And, well, I'm the new guy, but apparently I know enough to start teaching this stuff. So I've been doing that as well. Ironically, uh, literally the day before yesterday, this last Saturday, was in fact one of those training sessions where I, I ended up speaking about radios and, you know, this is the button you push when you want to talk to somebody and those kinds of things. So it's a lot of fun. It's a great organization. And like I said, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with the, uh, with the write-up. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. Nice. Thank you. Um, so to move on to some of the topics, I mean, we're already, we're already no, halfway through. We're awesome. out of time. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, I wanted to follow up very briefly on the Brazil Museum fire we talked about. I think it was last week, if not the week before. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the comments that I believe we were making was, in this age of social media and everybody taking pictures, would it be possible that people who have visited the museum prior to its going up in flames might be able to like reconstruct or donate or, or actually give back some of the pictures that they had taken so that at least in a digital sense, all is not lost. And sure enough, uh, there is an article in the, uh, the observer.com. It came out, I think earlier this week or last week. Um, Wikimedia, Wikipedia has received thousands of images for their archives of Brazil's museum fire losses which I thought was just awesome and timely. And it's, it's, you know, I love it, of course, when we have an idea and the world comes together to make it happen. But um, this, is, this is one of those cases where, you know, maybe letting people take pictures in your museum isn't that bad of an idea. It's very cool. I really like that this is happening. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Well, so what else? Thanks. All right, so uh, the, uh, the big news that I keep... Uh, hearing about this week was uh, the EU's new rules that are going to be coming down the pike about uh, that have passed about how to handle copyright on the internet. And uh, sounds like super bad news. Um, and I want to talk with you guys about it. Uh, basically, as, as I understand it, kind of the, the rules right now in the United States and also in Europe, the rules today um, is if, uh, the, is if someone posts something online and a copyright holder notices that it's there, they can send a note, uh, a notice, a, a takedown notice, and then that thing will be uh, come down off off the internet. And in the United States, it's the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that does that, and there's there's similar things in in the European Union. Uh, the the rules that have passed in the EU but have not taken effect yet change that instead of um from from notice and takedown to notice and stay down which uh, they can allow algorithms to compare everything that goes online with like hashes or something uh, of of copyrighted inf- inf- information and if something matches then it comes down immediately and that's it. Just automatically it comes down and it can't be put back up again. <laughs> so um, it seems like, uh, I, I, I don't, I mean, hmm. it seems like the this copyright directive, it's called Article 13, I should have said it before, um, basically makes this automatic content ID style filters mandatory yeah. for the whole internet. And it would allow people, uh, companies, corporations to just take stuff down that they think that they claim is theirs or that they don't agree with or, or that, that is too similar to something that, that they have created. And uh, it seems super problematic. I've been reading some articles at the, the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation about it, and they, they said this is just like the worst thing that could possibly happen to free speech on the Internet. Yeah, from my understanding is, you know, one of the big differences between now and, and, you know, moving forward is that, you know, if you're a content, you know, aggregator, you know, you're, you're a site where people can upload videos or upload, upload images or in text or audio or whatever to, 
uh, you, know, you have to put these things in place to automatically, you know, figure out if that's under copyright. And, um, and these things make mistakes all the time. And yeah, just ask YouTube. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I've had, oh, yeah, I've had sure. that happen to me mm-hmm. in YouTube. I've had, uh, let's see, God, over the years, I mean, I've posted so many videos, you know, to YouTube, none of which have violated anybody's copyright, but, uh, one, one occasion really early, early on, um, well, I should, I should add that so this type of takedown, it can, it's something that can be used now. Like you said, okay, somebody can notice that, hey, my copywritten material is up there. Please take that down. So when that, when that started, big companies like Sony and such said, well, okay, we'll, we'll set up software apps that run and look at all this stuff. And whenever they just find something that you know they detect is a copyright infringement on stuff we own, it'll automatically send a notice, right? So we can just run this program, let it run overnight, and it sends like five thousand notices, and we didn't even have to actually send them ourselves. When nobody had to look at them, it's just automatic. So you know what there's what I th- think is happening now is they're saying that you know they need to make this standard rather than putting it on the company to actually say you guys need right. to to do it. So early on. One of these uh, attempts wasn't even doing it, looking at the content. It was just looking at the titles. <laughs> and I had a title of a video that was actually the title of a song. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with each other. The, the, it was a common little phrase. And it happened to also you know, be an 80s pop song. And my video was something that ha- that title actually fitted as well. But there was, the song wasn't in it. It had nothing to do with the song. And it was just an automatic takedown notice to YouTube, a strike, and you know all this, and then I had to go through all these hoops to get YouTube to reinstate the video and take away my strike, my copyright strike, um, and that was a pain. And it, it cost you know whoever it was Sony or whoever it was nothing because they probably didn't even know they did it. It was just an automatic process, and it cost me all this time to prove that I didn't do anything. There was another time where um, I had a piece of music in a uh, like a background music over some tutorial I was doing and it was one of these canned pieces uh, royalty free part of Apple's software suite and I guess that same sample had found its way into some music library of some copyright holder and so when they ran this, this automatic program it came up and it said this is a match You're using copyrighted material but mm-hmm. they didn't actually own the copyright yeah, and, I read about that that recently uh, someone yeah, with Bach. yeah. so with so the Bach thing right uh, yeah. someone someone had used uh, I think Sony had had used a a Bach a public domain piece of Bach music in, in some movie or whatever and then then all of a sudden they claim they own Bach and someone you know and yeah. someone else plays you know uh, made a recording of them playing Bach on their cello or whatever it was and they get a copyright notice for playing a piece that happened to also be in a in a in a movie, you know, Sony movie. Yeah, yeah, which is, you know, so it's the automatic thing. And a lot of those headlines were very sensationalist, you know, saying that Sony was claiming, or what, I don't know if it was a Sony, whoever it was, claimed that they own, you know, and they weren't claiming. It was just an automatic process. But this is a little look into what could very quickly become a huge problem, uh, you know, if the EU EU goes forward with this kind of thing. And it's not just music. It could be, you know... um, you know, all sorts of, it could be text and images and, and yeah. all sorts of things. So, yeah, I was reading an interesting thing. Someone was just like trying to explain how, why this is such a bad idea. And they're just like, what if we wrote a program to create a billion headlines, just like a billion possible news headlines. Yeah. Right. And it could, it could be, uh, you know, um, We'll, we'll say, you know, famous person dies and famous person, you know, falls from a building and famous, per- you know, whatever, you just come up with a, a, a million billion headlines and then copyright them all and then wait for those things to really start happening and then start <laughs> sending out, you know, these automated notices saying, oh, sorry, you can't use that, that headline because yeah. we own that. And uh, you could actually, you know, prevent actual news from being reported. <laughs> Yeah. Well, technically, titles shouldn't aren't copyrightable. But uh-huh. sure, 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 sure. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, this similar idea. It's just, it's, I don't know. It's going to be a, a an issue, um, and it, and the thing is, it's going to mostly affect 
people who can't afford lawyers, right? Because mm-hmm. the people who can't afford lawyers and people who do this will just, you know, take care of business. You know, if something gets erroneously marked or whatever, and it's going to be all these individuals and small organizations and stuff that take the brunt of, uh, you know, this bad law. So is there any sense for how it affects people outside of the EU? I mean, we had this same discussion or a related discussion with the GDPR a few months ago. What does it mean to me as a web publisher in the United States who, quite honestly, I don't care what their laws are over there. I'm publishing my content and nobody's going to take it down because of my own ISP. Um, what's, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I, I don't think looking at it as a publisher like you is the right way to look at it. It's looking at it as a user. Like we were talking before about Instagram, it's an information right? consumer. Yeah. So, so say I post, say I take a picture of the Eiffel tower on my vacation and I post it to Instagram and somebody else posted a picture from almost exactly the same location. So much so like the, the clouds were in the same basic location where and Instagram now, according to this EU law, has to go and you know do this digital matching or whatever, and it turns out that your photo was so close to this other person's photo taken a year before that they flag it, and now all of a sudden it's like you're accused of copyright violation. So, your photo's taken down. I'm, I'm not. I'm not arguing that this is a good law. It's not. It's it's yeah. horrific. Everything I've heard about it is absolutely horrific, and it just speaks more to the politicians' lack of understanding of technology than it does to anything else. But I'm looking at it from the prag- from the more pragmatic point of view. Um, you know, I, I'm not Instagram. I don't have a footprint in the EU. I don't have to follow EU laws, so I'm not subject to worrying about what of my content matches somebody else's. Well, well, no. Well, what if Instagram, because they have to follow this EU law, tells you, hey, Leo, copyrighted image, not cool, strike one. And you're like, uh, but I didn't do anything. All right, well, I don't know what that's about, so I'm going to go on taking pictures. And, oh, strike two. Well, okay, but I still don't understand. Strike three, that's it. You're banned from Instagram. That's, I think, where it could really affect people. Yeah. What if the copyright holder uh, complains to the person who, uh, the, the company that you do your domain registry at, and after three strikes, they have to take down your, you know, askleo.com? Hmm. Then you're super affected. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so just, I don't know. There's a lot of ways where this could go wrong, be annoying. Um, you well, know, it's certainly going to be annoying. That part, I, I, I grant you. Like I'm I said, already I'm, annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> um, discussion's annoying me. It, it's more the matter of, of, like I said, really understanding what's the, the pragmatic, you know, boots on the ground kind of reality for um, anybody who is publishing, hosting a website, putting out content right. in the United States, for example, anywhere outside of the EU. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's when a company is a big international company, like Instagram, or let's say it's a, a blogging platform, and you are a political blogger, and then you decide to write a post about what somebody said, right? So you say, in, in their speech, they said this, and you quote like a paragraph of what they said, and then you say why this is bad, or whatever. And that, because that paragraph was included, suddenly it's erroneously tagged as copyright infringement by this blogging platform. And the blogging platform is only adhering to these rules because they have to operate in the EU, right? And so otherwise they wouldn't care if it was just the United States. But they, they say we're going to go by the EU rules because lowest common denominator. And now suddenly this point of view you're trying to get across, can't, you know, your, your speech is, is silenced because of this. This has already happened in a more direct way where people have claimed copyright infringement in order to get articles and opinion pieces taken down from the internet um, on copyright, you know, uh, charges, you know, saying that, you know, I don't like that video you made. I don't like this uh, opinion you wrote, um, but I have no grounds to take it down based on that because they're free speech, but I can take it down based on copyright. So I will just file a copyright complaint. So, Okay. Um, that's starting to make a little bit more, like I said, you're making it scarier. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> you're so welcome. That, which leads to the next question, though. What can we do? Well, uh, I mean, the uh, EFF has some suggestions, I think. Right, Kevin? 
I think so. I'll put links <laughs> in the show notes. I don't know what to do other than just complain here about it. I, I think the EFF I mean, you know, we, we, each, we each have our audiences, right? And we could certainly reach out to our audiences that happen to be in the EU and, and tell them to, you know, do whatever it is you do in the EU to make your opinion heard. But the history seems to show that especially when it comes to technology, that's not particularly effective either. Well, I don't know. We've they've we had some successful campaigns against various things over the years that you know help. I'm looking right now at the EFF.org page, and it is their top story here: new copyright powers, new tourist content regulations, a grim day for digital rights in Europe is the headline right now at the top of the EF uh, EFF.org web page. And usually, the EFF has I don't have time to read the article right now, but usually right. they're an action-oriented articles. They're like, here's the problem. Here's what you can do, um, you know, who to write to, who to complain to, right. what to, right. you know, do. So I would, if he, you know, I would start by going to EFF.org and uh, give them all your money. They, do get, <laughs> they, yeah. they actually already get my money. Yeah, yeah and, and mine, mine as well. They, I've been supporting them for, uh, for a couple of years now. And uh, no, I, I definitely agree with them as a, um, as a very important part in keeping the internet open and free and, and living up to all the different things that it was, uh, you know, that, that it was envisioned to be able to do. So I will do that. I will spend some time looking at, uh, at what, not just what the details are, but what the actions we, and perhaps, like I said earlier, our readers, our audience, you know, our respective mm -hmm. audiences might be able to take. I do want to add as a postscript that we've been bagging on the EU's bad decisions for quite a while, but they just announced that they're doing away with daylight saving time starting Yay. next year. So yeah. that's awesome. Oh. So, so oh, one fine. step forward and about <laughs> a thousand steps back. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's I wish we could do that. Yeah, I know. I wish too. And, but it's, it's wishful thinking. It is not, uh, it's just one of those things just feels like nobody's going to get behind it. Here yeah. in the U.S., yeah. unless all the states, you know, like what is it, like Indiana and Arizona? There's a couple of states that just said, "Nope, <laughs> we're yeah. not doing that oh, anymore." Right, and that's what it's going to take. I suspect you're yeah. right. Once we get to like 35 states, then then right. maybe quietly everybody will. The, the few states left would just be too embarrassed to admit it. If only, yeah. if only that approach would have worked for metric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, really. So yeah, we can't even do metric system and the daylight saving time is going to be around forever. If anything, each state will pick its own daylight savings time offset. Each and state should pick its own measurement system. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You have 50 different measurement systems. Are you measuring by a New Jersey yard or Florida <laughs> yard? Yeah. The Colorado metric ton. What's the furlongs per fortnight limit on this stretch of road? <laughs> exactly. Well, once we switch to the 27-hour day here in, in Oregon. We'll so be... much more done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, after that diversion, Gary, you've got something else that also sounds <laughs> I have another of... diversion. Speaking of diversions. Yeah. Illegal um, gambling, no less. So do, do either of you guys know what a loot box is? Sure. Kind of, sort of. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's a simple concept, right? And it sounds like what could possibly be controversial about this. The idea is you play, play games, and whether they're like simple little puzzle, 2D puzzle games you're playing on your iPhone, or whether it's Fortnite, you know, 3D massively multiplayer stuff, um, you, you get stuff sometimes. You find a weapon or, a, you know, extra life or, you know, health points or whatever it is you get these little things and you you find them and it, they've been around for so many years in games, right? Since early adventure games, you'd find a sword and a dagger and a, and a flask of water and all that stuff. So you get stuff. Well, sometimes now you get stuff and it's in a box, right? Like in the old adventure games, you'd find a chest and then you'd open the chest and it was like gold and a, you know, a, a magic ring or whatever. Well, in games now you still get bundled together goods, but every once in a while, you get something that in game terminology is known as a loot box, which means you don't know what's inside, right? It could be some really cool stuff, or it could just be some lame stuff. 
Right. It's like like buying, getting a, a blind box at the, the store of a little toy in there. You yeah, don't know what yeah you're exactly. And it's, it's easy for, you know, it, a lot of, now, most of the time in games, you just find these things. You're, you're in this little world or you're playing this little puzzle game and you just, as a reward for completing a level or opening a door and going in somewhere, you find a loot box and it's like, oh, cool. What's in the loot box? Open it up. Hey, I got a, a power up or whatever. Now, the, um, Sometimes you get them for free. Sometimes you get them for accomplishing tasks inside the game, which is free also. You're just actually playing the game. But what complicates things is sometimes you make an in-app purchase. You know, you, you spend money, and as part of that, you get various things. You might get some specific items. You might get a level or, you know, level up or additional levels to play. And sometimes you may actually purchase loot boxes. So you're actually buying something, and you don't know what it is. It could be worth a lot in the game. It could be worth a little bit in the game, which apparently never occurred to me, but occurred to lots of lawyers. <laughs> Sounds like gambling because you're paying money and hoping to get something worth more than what you thought, and you may not. And what complicates it further is sometimes items like loot boxes are traded outside the game. You can get like an item. Like say you would get in an adventure game, you get a magic sword in a big, massively multiplayer game, and you can sell that on eBay, and then the buyer then transfers it, you know, they transfer in the game, but the money is transferred in the real real world. Well, sometimes in some games, you could do that with loot boxes. You could buy a loot box, or probably a whole bunch of them. And so you're actually spending real money and, uh, you know, getting something that is kind of like a random chance of something. And this, to some people, sounds a lot like gambling. To me, it sounds like a lot of fun. And if you want to spend money instead of putting the work into the game, fine. But some people, they say it's gambling. And I guess a study was done, um, uh, let's see, in Australia uh, to um, you know, say that this is a, a case of gambling. Or, or pro- actually, a British study. Sorry, British study. Uh, that this is could be gambling, or at the very least, could be kind of a gateway to train young people, you know, to, uh, in you know, getting used to gambling and stuff like that, and that it even triggers some of the same gambling addiction behavior that adults have, but in kids um, with these loot boxes. So well, these, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say. So you know, the idea is loot boxes were just a game design feature until two days ago or whenever these reports came out. Just something fun. Hey, here, let's put loot boxes in our game. And now suddenly there's something that, well, this might be something that has to be regulated or somehow supervised by, you know, uh, organizations. And we can't just throw them in there. There's rules we need to follow. There does seem, if I understand what you've described properly, there does seem to be a spin on it. And that is the ability to buy loot boxes. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, I think, you know, we're, this is coming from because certainly you know like i've said before i play world of warcraft and yep there's treasure chests in various places and sometimes they're easy to get to sometimes the reward is the fact that they're really really hard to get to and once you do get to them you get something a little bit more valuable but they tend to be more um gosh to use i guess to use the terminology that gets thrown about when they talk about gambling is that these are rewards for games of skill, right? You've, you've been able to accomplish something in order to mm-hmm. get to the chest or find the chest or do something like that. Um, but I, I've not actually not run. Certainly in Warcraft, the only thing you can purchase with money are things like some character changes, like you can change the kind of a character you have. You can buy game time, obviously. Um, but I don't think you can buy specific, you can buy cosmetic things. I think you can buy like gear that, that has no uh, combat value, but has um, appearance value. And you can buy, I think, some companion animals, some pets, that kind of thing. But I you can buy stuff outside of the game too, right? Like you could pay somebody on eBay to trade some good to your character, right? Sure. Yeah, you could do that. But loot boxes aren't one of them, right? Loot boxes aren't something you own. They're not something you can carry. They're just something you open. Uh, But once you open it, then you could trade or sell that. But then it's not gambling anymore because you know what it is. Exactly. It's a thing. It's it's an exchange. And it's probably, you know, it's against the game's terms of service, but it's not necessarily legal. 
Um, so to me, the thing, the thing that really sets this apart and perhaps makes this less of an issue than perhaps it might sound like is that, you know, this, this concept of purchasing it for some, some agree, some vague definition of purchase um, that would, that makes this gambling as opposed to just. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for me as like, as a game designer myself, it's, it's weird to think, okay, so I've got in my game, you could buy a weapon, you could buy armor. And you could, uh, you know, you buy loot boxes. And to me, as a designing a game, I wouldn't. If you, these are three items you could get in the game, and then I say, oh, there's people that are bugging me, saying I don't want to have to play for 20 hours to find a weapon. I want to just be able to buy the weapon. I'll pay you 99 cents. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll put that in. You could just buy this weapon for 99 cents. And hey, same for the other item. Same for the armor. Same for the loot boxes. And I would just think of that as a design thing, and to suddenly have like somebody at your game studio tapping you on the shoulder say actually our lawyers want you to not make loot boxes <laughs> i'd be like what you have what's to show the them what's in the box before they buy what's the difference this is just a fun game why is this yeah, all yeah. getting complicated now um poker is just a fun game too yeah well yeah exactly it, <laughs> i guess but it's 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 a weird it's a weird like nobody developed loot boxes to say here's a new form of gambling right it just it just kind of backed into it and, and mm. And I don't still know if it is. I, I don't know if they're being oversensitive towards like, and it, it seems to be a stretch to say that a loot box, purchasing a loot box is a form of gambling. It, it's like, well, I mean, are you going to say, well, purchasing a weapon in a game, that could be like, are you going to be good at using that weapon? <laughs> Will you continue to play the game now that you've spent money? I don't know. It's yeah, that's that's yeah. It's it really does boil down to the difference between skill and chance. Um, you know, if if, if yeah, spending money for chance is one yeah. thing. Spending money for skill or in lieu of skill is something else. I don't know. It's an interesting problem, and I'm sure the lawyers will have lots of fun with it. Uh yes, and I'm sure the game designers will have lots of angst over the lawyers getting into a, yet another game design issue. And I can imagine like, you know, existing game designers like Warcraft and Fortnite and whatever, yeah. they very, may very well avoid some interesting design decisions uh, yes. based on the risk of it potentially being characterized as gambling. Yeah, it is interesting to think. I, I remember um, it, it seems like professions professions spring up Stay with me on this. I'm getting to a point here. Professions spring up, um, and you train for those professions by like taking, you know, learning the skill in the trade school or college or something. And then at some point, the profession gets mature enough that during your training, you have to learn some law. You know, instead of like you be a journalist, it's like you just need to learn how to write and report. And then eventually it's like, oh, actually now we also need to teach you some law before you go work for a newspaper because there's a bunch of legal issues. And it's like, you know, game designers is like that. It's like no point up till now was a game designer. It's like, okay, game designer law class in college. It's like that wasn't a thing. But, you know, I could see that happening now. I could see yeah. in a couple of years, every game designer, before they graduate, one thing they need to do is take that class in game design law. And it teaches you things like loot boxes, could be considered gambling <laughs> and you have to design around that. Right. So anyway, that, I think we're, we're, we filled up the hour pretty well. Yes, we did. What you got coming up next week? Uh, uh, so uh, today was the release of iOS 12. So of course all this week I'll be doing tutorials on iOS 12 and then Monday, uh, you know, the next week is the release of Mac OS Mojave, which I'll start doing tutorials of Mojave and I'll have my course out. I finished my course and I just got to relate for the re release of Mojave. So I'm going to have a big new course out next week. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that's, that's a big thing for me because, you know, I just come out with these courses when Apple updates their software. And I, this one is actually clocking in as my biggest course ever. It's currently well over seven hours. Of, wow. of course time. And I didn't expect, I knew, I knew I passed five hours, which I think, you know, broke the so, previous record, but I had no idea it went to seven until I was is that is that a reflection of just how much is getting packed into this release, or is it just an improvement? It's it's a combination, because there are, I did do some tutorials on, there's a new news app, there's a new stocks app, and there's a new um, uh, voice memos app, and I did videos on those, so right, those added like a chunk of time to it, mm -hmm. and I did some app uh, uh, bits on some new features, 
So that probably added an hour's worth of time to it. But then also just having done these before, it's like, okay, I'm talking about this now. Let me go into a little more detail, this aspect or that aspect and, and all. And I think it just all kind of added up and uh, created this very long uh, course, which is good because it's a reference course. You know, you don't have right. to go and say, well, I don't get anything out of it unless I start at the beginning and go seven and a half hours through. It's like, right. no, you could do these, you know, the, maybe the first 10 lessons to get some basics, then skip a couple because it's like, oh, I, I don't use that or I, I use that so much, much that I know it really well. And then maybe a couple months later say, you know what, I want to start using the, the voice memos app. Let me go back to that course I bought. Right. And now I'll go and I'll do the lesson on the voice memos app, that kind of thing. Cool stuff. Yeah. So that's, what you got coming up? Uh, I don't know. I have a weekend's wide open. I might, I could hop on the car and visit either one of you. I got, I got nothing this week. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Maybe right. you should go back and start interviewing some more people. No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, as for me, I'm not going to be here next week. I'm doing what, apparently what Kevin is doing this week. I've got nothing going on the week after, so I'll be out camping, watching waves on the Pacific uh. Coast. I'm jealous. Hoping that I'm not getting rained on the entire time. But even if I am, it'll be fine. Yeah. So with oh. that, uh, let's see. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh41. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the teh podcast. And let's see. Thanks for listening. We could always use your likes, your comments, your subscribes, uh, you know, all that stuff that, that all those other annoying podcast people keep saying every week. We only do it every so often. This is one of those offens. That's it for this week. Take care, everyone. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye.